Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Do you consider yourself more of a beach person or a mountain person? Or maybe you just like flatland, I don't know, or cities. Regardless, we all have our favorite things about each of those places that we travel to. I'm in a beach town right now, and I'm going to share one of my favorite things about beach towns in today, plus an interview with somebody I got hooked up with in a crazy way. (laughs) I can't even believe how small this world is. I'll share that story as well, and much more. It's all happening next, right now. So buckle up, hit recline, relax. Thanks for being here, and Welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks so much for hanging out, spending time with me, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. I'm sitting in the backyard of my Airbnb here in Tarpon Springs, Florida, where we're enjoying some warm weather and escaping the Norwegian winter. I left Oslo a few weeks ago, and man, it's been brutal since we left. There's been a lot of sickness on this trip, more sickness, I think, than I've had on any trip. It's crazy. I'm actually just getting over the stomach flu. I was throwing up about 24 hours ago, hugging the toilet and just trying to get through the night, but I'm here with you today because I got to deliver this podcast to you on time every week, my friend, and I'm feeling better. Thanks for asking. I'm feeling much better. Have you gotten deathly ill on a trip. I'm sure you have. If you've traveled, we've all been sick uh, and it's it's a terrible thing. So anyway, I'm glad to be back on the microphone with you and you might hear a little splashing in the background. I'm actually along the water here in the Gulf Coast and there's some fish jumping every now and again throwing me off off my game a little. So I'll try to stay focused. We got a big show for you today, an action-packed show. Yes, I brought up the beach town thing because I am in a beach area. It's been a long time since I've been in Florida. I actually worked at Disney in uh, the college program when I was 20 years old and as an intern. So I lived down here for those few months. That was a crazy time. And I've been here on tour traveling before, but I haven't really 
gone out of my way to travel to Florida uh, ever. But every time I've been here, I've enjoyed it. And it's not at the top of my bucket list, but I got family down here and it's a great place to come in the winter. And you know what? Pleasantly surprised. It's been a long time since I've been here and I'm really enjoying exploring the beaches. We went to a state park today. There's a lot of great local restaurants, amazing seafood if you go to the right places. Just having a great time. And I wanted to share one, actually two of my favorite things that beach towns have to offer that you see in every good beach town, I would say. Uh, First, I want to tell you a little bit about today's interview with my buddy Curtis, my new friend who owns the biggest bike touring company in Oslo, Norway. And I got hooked up with him because I heard through the grapevine that we actually went to the same high school insanely enough. And I'm based in Oslo, if you're listening to this for the first time. And when I heard that this guy owned Viking Biking, this huge bike touring company, I was like, I got to meet this dude. And I started digging into his story. He has worked internationally for the UN. He lived in France studying, speaks French, speaks Norwegian. There's so many interesting things that this guy has done in his life. And now he owns this bike touring company. I said, well, we're going to have a great conversation. There's no doubt about it. Not only that, I'm going to go down and meet him in person, get to do this interview in his bike shop. And now you're going to listen into that conversation in just a second. Really quickly, before you do, I want to thank Pimsler for supporting today's show. If you go to zerototravel.com slash easy, what you're going to find is a free seven-day trial for the best way to learn a foreign language via audio. Via audio, just like you listen to podcasts to learn, now you can do the same thing with a foreign language. Well, you've been able to do it for a while because Pimsleur has been around for 50 plus years. This is the same language learning method used by organizations like the FBI and the State Department. Uh, And it's just an incredible product. I've been a customer for a long time and a fan, and that's why I'm partnering with them to bring you this offer that they're sharing with Zero to Travel podcast listeners. Again, zerototravel.com slash easy, free seven-day trial to Pimsleur's fantastic audio courses. You can speak at an intermediate level in 30 days and transform your travels. Most importantly, that's the thing. You get to connect with people on a much deeper level when you can speak the local language even just a little bit. They really appreciate that. And if you decide to continue on with that trial, you'll also be supporting this podcast. So I thank you so very much for that. And I will leave those links in the show notes. Now, let's get into my interview with Curtis. And on the back end, I'll share those two favorite things about Beach Towns with you. Stick around for that. And a quote, I'll see you on the other side of the interview. Thanks again for listening. I have the pleasure of sitting here right now with the founder of Viking Biking, based in Oslo, Norway, number one on TripAdvisor, I saw today, for outdoor activities in Oslo, and their website's vikingbikingoslo.com. So we're going to talk about bike touring today, life as an expat, and we're going to get into a bunch of stuff, and I'm sitting here with the founder right now. Curtis, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Thanks. Nice to be along. Let's high-five it here. Fellow American expats here. Yeah. Well, not only that, we went to the same high school. That just uh, blows my mind. The world <laughs> is just too small. This is one And you're of not the first one I've met in this shop. Really? Who went to the same high school. Amazingly, I think I've had two other customers in the last seven years. One who was in my graduating class, and I didn't know. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I graduated with 
eight hundred and forty something. Same here. Or something. Yep. Yeah, so yeah, about the same. Um, yeah, it was funny because I have traveled around Central America, South America, Asia, all these places, and you know when you're traveling for an extended period, you'll oftentimes just run into random people that you stayed in a hostel with or yeah. something, and you just think, "Wow, this is like such a small world," and that really is such a visceral thing that drives that point home. And then when I found out that you were here and that you run this company and that you went to the same high school as me, I had that same sort of feeling. I'm like, "Holy crap!" This and a is... no-brainer. We had to talk. Yeah, we had to talk. No better place. I'm looking around, and I mean, first I walk in. There's just like loads of bikes, mm-hmm. and I see a little bike shop set up over here. You got the workbench with all the tools. I mean, this is like this feels cozy, man. Like how proper bike shop? <laughs> how did how did a guy from uh, suburban Philadelphia mm-hmm. end up in Oslo? Why well, should all right before we get to that, let's talk about growing up because I mean we've had a similar experience growing up in terms of where we're from but um, 61 east elizabeth lane rich bro pa baby all right new newtown pa i'm a newtown guy yeah, right down the road yep. but i mean did you travel with your family growing up was that a thing for you for you no, guys or? not not out of the u.s per se no, no. Okay. um i had a travel bug very early on my parents remember a story where we were Somewhere on the East Coast, old and colonial, like a Georgetown or a Williamsburg or something old. And I had told my parents that I was going to go to college in a place that was old because I wanted to live in an old town. And I think I was 10 years old. I actually did then. I ended up going to William & Mary, one of the oldest schools in the country. I chose a school based on the fact that it had an old town. Also then during high school, I spent a summer in France. Okay. Like a, Once a, a student exchange? Yeah, kind of, yes. Yeah, so, yep. Okay. And so then I uh, I was also drawn to this concept of an old town. And I always told my parents from a young age, I didn't want to just be in a place where I had to drive everywhere. I think it was a reaction to suburban life, actually. Yeah. And I always loved bikes. I'd go to Tyler State Park and suburban, you know, you know it well. Oh, and yeah. this is right your backyard, my backyard, same yeah. here. And I'd spend all my days biking, you know, and swing by the grocery store, pick up some food and candy, go to Tyler Park, spend my day biking and bike back. And... I never felt like I fully fit in the just driving around everywhere culture. And so I kind of turned my back on that in college and went to a little walkable town with an old town. I went to France and of course it's famous for that type of urban planning, the little centralized downtowns and you just walk and can bike everywhere and take public transport. I don't know what the impetus was, but I just know I was always drawn to it really early on. I mean, my parents just have funny stories of me in elementary school talking that way. Yeah. Who knows why? We got we got uh we got some bike maintenance going on in the background, which uh which no, it's great because uh Add this is a travel flavor. podcast. You want to have the flavor, that's right. <laughs> He's heading um, out on tour now. I felt the same way about Colorado where I ended up going later in life. For some reason I wanted to go to university in Colorado. And I didn't do that, but I ended up living in Colorado. But I'd never been there. It was something about just the mountains. I mean, who knows yeah. why when you're a kid these random things come up to your biking experience. Mine was skateboarding. We would skateboard down to Newtown. We would just skateboard everywhere. And then later biking as well. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a mix, but um, my whole way of living now and being in Oslo and like moving to Boulder when I was there Mm -hmm. and just kind of loving the idea of walking places and not getting in the car for everything is sort of a, to counter that suburban experience. I hadn't really thought about it that way. And it's not like, I mean, I had a wonderful childhood and I loved where I grew up and it was everything I could have asked for. Yeah. 
So it's not that I'm against it in no. a way. It's just that I, I had a feeling that it didn't fit me in the long run. It's not how I was going to live as an adult. Loved it as a kid, but I couldn't see myself doing that as an adult. And so it's not a, in a way, a necessarily a negative reaction. Yeah. It's just knowing that it didn't fit me for the rest of my life. It was like certain places are right for certain phases. Right. Uh, I even describe Norway that way. I say to people, if you're a kid or you have kids, it's amazing. If you're a 22-year-old looking to party, it's pretty expensive. If you're retired and don't feel like breaking your hip on the ice in the winter, you go to the south of Spain. Like no place is perfect. Right. It's just some places fit you for that phase of life. Yeah. And so where I grew up fit me great for that phase of life. But I seem to know already later on I was going to need something different. And so hence the travel bug. Yeah. The, the whole phase of life thing, I, I agree. I mean, I didn't think Norway was going to be a place that I would live uh, mm -hmm. because I wanted to get back to Colorado. But now that I do have a couple kids and you have three kids, you just had your yeah. third. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and you've got your second. Congrats yeah. back at you. It is a perfect place for this phase of life. And who knows what will come next, right? Yep. I definitely want to take my kids around the world and travel with them and show them the world and all that stuff. But right now, it's cool to be here. When you went to France, was that the thing that got you more interested in exploring and seeing the world? Was that was that the, the thing that put the travel bug into a hyperdrive? Absolutely. Now, oddly enough, when I was going to France, my first choice was Madagascar. Really? I wanted to go French speaking because I'd been studying right. French okay, yeah. um, since I was 13 years old or something. So I wanted to try to improve it. I wanted to go to Madagascar. And then there was some problems with the program that I wanted to go on with some security issues. And it got recommended that we didn't. So I ended up choosing France, which yeah. was my backup plan. I, I guess I, I always pictured myself working overseas humanitarian, which is actually my background, not tourism whatsoever. Uh, that was kind of more of a side gig. And so I wanted to do humanitarian work, be based out of Europe. I had a very clear vision for what I wanted the, to do. After the I'm experience in France? No, I'm like, talking from like 16 years old. Really? Yeah, I have no clue why. I chose a college based on what I wanted to study, which would help me get over the seas internationally to do humanitarian work. Yeah. It was there. And I did. I, we can talk later, but I worked for the Red Cross for many years and did humanitarian work. And so, uh, I don't know, I've, I kind of had a, a vision in mind. It didn't involve a bike store. <laughs> <laughs> that that kind of came about in my mid-30s midlife crisis, I guess. Uh, but France then became what was going to be Madagascar and ended up being France, uh, really turned into kind of that jump-off point of leading me down a path that was going to be, I think I knew quite quickly, maybe a permanent expat or okay, long-term yeah. expat. I what, could feel it as soon as I got there. When you talked about not quite feeling like you fit in, riding your bike around suburban Philadelphia, yeah. and then you get to France and now it feels a little bit, oh, okay, this is... This, if I could this, just learn the language, this lifestyle like is home. a place for me? Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's hard to tune into that intuition sometimes, but I think Maybe it's easier when you're younger, right? Because you're just so open and there's so many possibilities with where you but, can go. You know, I also think we're, we're kids of the 80s. Yeah. And U.S. cities were quite different back then. If I were growing up now, I might not have that same push to leave in a way because U.S. cities have become better at planning densely. That's true. Uh, improved public transport, uh, kind of burgeoning 
bike movements in lots of cities, and of course, Boulder, where yeah. you are, but even- That was a big reason know, I moved Washington, there. Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, where we're from. I mean, these, have, these towns have completely transformed themselves, and they allow a lifestyle now that I don't think was there necessarily when we were kids in the 80s into the early 90s thinking, hey, how do I want to live my life as an adult? Yeah. That scene has changed. Yeah. And so I think I'm a product of a generation where there wasn't really many good alternatives if you wanted to lead a lifestyle that I think I was looking to lead, which was more kind of walking-based, uh, bike-based, just feeling uh, there's like a certain socialness to that type of lifestyle. Yeah. But that exists now in a lot of American right. cities. It's really bounced back. So uh, that's why I leave the door open to going back at some point. It's not like uh, I feel like I have to be over here for the rest of my life. Who knows I, where, as you just said, who knows where you end up? Right. I think it's a hugely important thing to kind of assess your lifestyle constantly, right? I mean, you talked about the lifestyle, you wanted the lifestyle being able to walk around and that was something that resonates with me because I le love not getting in a car. Well, first of all, yeah. I failed my driver's license here in Norway, nice. embarrassingly enough. Um, it's, a that's, tough, it's a tough test. Don't get me on that rant because I, I oh, it pisses me off still. But um, I have a Norwegian driver's license, but never took the exam. That's a different story. So I feel oh, bad man. for you. I need to know how you did that. And uh, if you know anybody that can can get that for me in town, you know. It's in I'd, full legality. I'll pay cash. <laughs> in full legality. <laughs> All right. I'll pick your brain on that later. Um, but no, if you're listening to this and, and you're thinking, oh, well, you know, where I live right now or what I'm doing right now, where I'm traveling isn't really fitting in with the lifestyle that I want right now in, in this phase of my life because it's hard to recognize as you change as a person, right? You're just mm -hmm. in the moment with it, but yeah. then you look back and, and you can see how you change and yeah. how you evolve. So um, I think assessing that and seeing, okay, maybe I can put myself physically in a place that gives me that lifestyle that I want. I, th I think um, it's quite important. The physicality of a location, I think, is uh, underestimated. Even when you're traveling in a way, I find the more I've traveled, the more I become interested in places where I could somehow imagine living there even if it's completely different i could right like someplace that's just a, a tourist destination you know living on a tropical beach I, I just don't see myself doing that you know realistically i've got three kids and i'm not just going to live on a tropical beach in the maldives so it's cool to visit i guess for rest and relaxation but in a way i've i've turned more towards a traveling where i can almost relate to a place i mean even if it's uh, somewhere in thailand or malaysia where i could say oh i, I could see how you could live here completely different lifestyle but i see how it's livable I'm drawn to the idea of the physicality of the place um, makes it feel like it could almost be like a home to me. I, it's a yeah, it's this different type of travel. The more you travel, the older you get. I think you've seen lots of cool tourist sites, and you're done with that a bit. Yep. And I all of a sudden appreciate good urban planning, <laughs> like random right. things like that. Where I'm like, oh, this city's laid out beautifully. Well, how well thought out, you know? Just it, it's a different mentality, but I think that physicality of if you're not happy with where you are in life, sometimes it can be the place, and it's it sometimes it's just right to switch pack it up. up. And uh, yeah, for some people, it means changing cities. For you and me, I think it meant more changing continents or countries. Right, that works too. I think it's interesting how um, travel opens up those possibilities. If you said to my I don't know, my teenage self, or even in my earlier 20s before I started traveling, oh, well, you know, you could just live, you, you mentioned the Maldives, so I'm going to live on the Maldives on a tropical island. That would be like, well, who can do that? That's impossible. That's insane. But then when you travel around and you see people living and you meet expats and, and you're there and you understand what life is like there, all of those things become more of an actual reality yeah. that you can consider. And you're like, oh, wait, yeah, I could just 
move to Thailand for a little while or live in Southeast Asia or, or move to Argentina for six months and study Spanish or, or those things just seem less impossible. It's I funny because I have a specific example of that that I remember so well. I was back visiting my high school friends. Um, let's see, this was 15 years ago. Yeah. And I had just been living in Annecy, a beautiful town in the Alps in France below the Swiss border. Sounds terrible. Uh, yeah, it's horrible. It's <laughs> set on canals on an alpine lake, snow-covered. It's one of the most beautiful like, mid-sized towns in Europe that I've seen. It's really spectacular, one of the best old towns. It's out of this world. And I was living in the old town, just getting by by teaching English and putting together some odd jobs here and there. So I wasn't living glamorous whatsoever in a small apartment but in the old town it was the location was amazing and i'm back visiting my high school friends and one of them had been there uh, a couple of years before mm. and he said yeah man it seems great but i don't see how you can like really live there it's just like too pretty it's not real <laughs> and i think if you <laughs> sounds just, like somebody from philadelphia yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right great great guy by the way actually um but but that's the that, that is that was like the mentality, the and for mentality. me, it was like, no, this is actually livable, and you can do it. And uh, if you fall in love with the place, you just go for it, and then that affects every other aspect of your life. So sometimes the the physicality of a place it can seem almost daunting. Like I just don't see how I could live here. No way. But actually, it can bring you real great happiness to be in a place that you just think it's almost too good to be true, or uh, doesn't seem within the line of reason. But you set your mind to it. You can end up in a lot of cool places, yeah. and then that physicality of location starts to affect just how you see the world, and you start to think differently, and everything changes, um, whether it's what place you want to visit for your next vacation destination, or what type of apartment you choose to live in so you don't have to drive. It just sets you on a different path, and down you go. Anyway. And tell me how you ended up with the Red Cross, because you worked for humanitarian aid for the International Red Cross, is that right? How did you take your college experience and actually land a gig like, I guess, give us your... your yeah, I, I didn't study tourism, even though that's what I work in, now, right. tourism and biking. Um, you studied I, it, in the, I, I think, I would say, in a way, if you traveled the world. Yeah, but I mean, my degree, my undergrad degree is in international law, and then my graduate degree is from the law school in Lyon in France. Okay. Um, plus with like a postgraduate certificate in England, where I was looking on management of kind of like legal issues and management issues surrounding disaster response. So you just, after you finished at William and Mary, right? Yep. You just, you're like, hey, I'm going to do the rest of my education overseas. That's Yeah, it. and so, yeah. And I, I worked for a couple of years, um, as I said, teaching English, picking up some odd jobs, and then went back to school, uh, both in England and in France, and then finished off my master's degree in French yeah. uh, at the University of Lyon. Wow. And it was very relevant to uh, humanitarian work. I mean, you're looking a lot at kind of international rules around disaster. Red Cross is a place to end up. Yeah. And uh, that's what happened. Just through like good connections, people, you know, I know this person who knows that person just through a little network of web and get my CV out there and sent, typical story, just sent probably hundreds of CVs yeah. and ended up getting one of them. And I stayed with the Red Cross um, then for almost eight years mostly during like human resources during crises. Okay. Um, what was that experience like? I was based in Geneva. It was very international expat. I speak French uh, still. I mean, I finished up a master's degree in French, so my French is quite good, and then I worked in French. But still, it was a very expat lifestyle. It was tough to get in touch with the locals, even though I spoke French, because Geneva, like many European cities, really has a big international expat crowd. 
And uh, so it was having friends from every corner of the world, from every continent, uh, who have all traveled around. And you're this in the, is the end, experience you wanted. Uh, yeah, right? it is. And you start to create a, a community where it doesn't fit actually like one country. You're not living a Swiss lifestyle, or in France, you don't live a French lifestyle. If you're in the expat community of New York, you don't necessarily live a New York lifestyle. You lead an expat lifestyle. It's like this weird, sometimes fitting a, what do we say, like a square peg into a round hole? <laughs> yeah. Um, where like the place inspires you and you want to be in that place and you want to be in that job, but actually kicking open the door and being a part of the local community can be challenging. Yeah. Uh, and so Geneva was definitely that. Uh, it was a bit like that also in the UK where I was in Brighton, uh, where it was very expat based. And so I led that lifestyle for you know 10 to 15 years. And it was only when I came to Norway, where I have a Norwegian wife and now kids who are integrated into Norwegian society and they speak Norwegian to me, that I have like a, I'm attached to a, the identity of I'm a real local here. Right. Uh, so for a long time, I think like you did, it was a little bit of a roaming expat and you're traveling all the time with your work or just with friends or to go back and see family. It was a very itinerant lifestyle in a way. Yeah. You're half the time in a suitcase and now I'm settled down and have my kids and whatnot. Uh, but I would definitely say that experience of what I had in Geneva, it's what I had been looking for and I got it. I had it for a good amount of time. Yeah. But at some point, you're ready for something different. Yeah. And once again, we talked about this phase of life. And it was like the phase of time. life. You were and feeling the it's time for a change. Yeah, it was time yeah. for a change. And so, uh, but no, I, I But kinda, you met I your lived, wife at the Red Cross or? Yeah, she worked for the UN. Okay. And I worked for the Red Cross and we were neighbors. I just asked her out. I kept seeing her. Pretty attractive, blonde hair, blue-eyed, typical Norwegian. So I just <laughs> asked her out. And there we go. Uh, she probably regrets it, but. <laughs> um, but here we are it uh it amazingly uh it amazingly worked out what does she think of uh the philadelphia area i know when i go back home it's funny this is no offense to anybody in philly because i fall right into it and i came from it and mm -hmm. you can probably hear it in my voice now just talking to another guy yeah. from philly you just start talking louder yeah, yeah i go absolutely. home it sounds like everybody's screaming at each other Completely. i'm like they're just talking <laughs> Normally. <laughs> On the trains <laughs> in Norway, you wonder why everyone's whispering. <laughs> it sounds so quiet here, comparatively. It's so funny. Um, now, you know, my, my wife, she spent a year abroad in high school in rural Illinois, oh, yeah. southwest of Peoria. Oh, wow. Okay. With an extremely conservative, very openly racist family really? that came from extremely very different background. She's from a very secular, well-educated family. She's from a farm, but they're PhD holders and they farm on the side, but they're very educated, secular, like they belong to the humanist society, completely different than yeah. you would get. So it was a very interesting experience. But uh, at the same time, she was living in what was nearly basically like a double wide trailer. It was uh, poor. It was closed-minded. They weren't interested in Norway openly racist, using the N-word to describe blacks, it was eye-opening. And it was all of the bad stereotypes of the U.S. were reinforced for her. Right. Wow. And so when she met me and she told people she was dating an American, her friends just all laughed and thought it was a joke. Right. They would never, because she said, oh, I'm never stepping foot back in that country. And then she discovered different aspects of the U.S. We right. went to Boston and she saw New England in the fall and it was amazing in this cute little towns of New England. And 
you know, old town Philadelphia and then really enjoyed DC. And my family lives in Southern Virginia and Williamsburg and Virginia beach and really like the weather there when we go in the winter. Um, and she has been over to Seattle and the West coast, uh, up to Vancouver and started to get this whole kind of different feel at, oh, wow, yeah. you know, this country's the size of a continent and that she actually does like parts of it. Mm. So I, it took her a little while. So her initial reaction was like, oh, God, I can't believe well, it. Like, are we so yeah, to hear when somebody goes to your home country and has an experience like that and they're getting, they get a little slice of like the worst of the worst, especially in that case, like of be, just being around that and yeah. not getting a chance to engage in everything else that you know. But that could happen in any country. It happen anywhere. Absolutely. You know, I actually know a guy who's from Wisconsin who loves Norway but on a high school year abroad was in a rural dark valley above the Arctic Circle and got depressed because he didn't see daylight for four and a half months a year. Yeah. And hated it. Right. Ended up back in Norway, but in southern Norway. Yeah. You know, where we've got light and it's a much easier climate. And he was in, you know, kind of a rundown farm and a little small valley. And he just, uh, he kind of, he stuck it out and ended up falling in love with Norway. Mm. But there's an example that can go in both directions. Yeah. And it's a good thing in general for like a lesson learned. The more you've traveled, the more you've been abroad is you don't judge it just on one experience. Yeah. Um, most countries, unless you're talking like a little small micro country, most countries are more than just one place. Yeah. You often have to kick the tires a bit, maybe even give it a second chance. Uh, I didn't enjoy England my first time, for example then you grow to like it right. and you learn it better and you go back a second time with a different perspective. Yeah, like and don't don't spend three days in a country and say you hate it. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like exactly. I mean, maybe if you've been in a really tiny, like you're in Luxembourg, maybe perhaps you could do a judgment after a couple of weeks or something. But otherwise, uh, you definitely have to be a little bit open-minded about it. Can It can take some time. Did you bike tour around Europe when... Yeah, that's, I, that's how I fell in love with France. Was biking. Okay. I've said, I've, I've done the Tour Talk de France like 10 times. <laughs> You've done what, 10 the times? Tour de France, 10 really? times, but just wow. not in the real Tour de France, just in my own made up version where right. I would bike around. I mean, I have okay. I have covered that was country. Was it bike touring? To, were you... Um, literally packing my bikes yeah. with uh, you know dozens of pounds of gear on the front and back tires on the racks and yeah. fully kitted out, um, along with day trips wherever I lived in France, because I've lived on the north part, the south part, the east part, the west part. Uh, and then a good bit uh, in Switzerland too. That was your primary means of traveling and having Absolutely. adventures. Yeah. And so, I mean, I've done some crazy stuff like biking from Switzerland to Spain without a map, for example, just for fun, just like figured. How did that go? You know, you follow the Rhone River and it hits the Mediterranean and then you follow the Mediterranean. As long as the Mediterranean's on your left, I you're heading that. in the right direction. Old school, like, you're like, yeah. hey, follow this river, hit the Mediterranean, turn, follow the turn, med. le turn left or right or whatever. You turn right and as long as the med is on yeah. your left, more or less, you know you're in the right direction. Right. Um, did you have a compass or what did you? No, no, not really. You just, just ask um, around. When you, the worst, yeah, what a pure I asked, way to travel, right? The worst mistake I made was about a 20 kilometer detour. Okay. Um, but otherwise, you know, nothing... You know, if you don't have... How do you exact... feel after that? <laughs> You're like, crap. Not you know, too bad. Yeah, you know, you know... Not, not, I, you I settle think, into um, a slower pace, right? You do. It's something I love about bike tourism uh, is you enjoy the actual process. You enjoy biking. Biking's fun. Like, I love to go hiking too. Put on a huge backpack, go in the mountains. But man, those backpacks are heavy and your shoulders ache at the end of the day. Yeah. And biking's easy on the body. And so if you make a 20-kilometer mistake, but you've seen some beautiful stuff... You're not... What's a, a mistake? I'm yeah. using air quotes. Yeah. You know? um, it's really not that big of a problem 
because it's just light on the body. It's not hard on the knees. You don't have all of the weight on your body. You know, the bags are on the bike. And so once you get used to, you've got a little bit of a weight uh, balance issue, Yeah, you know, because you've got bags on the front wheels and bags on the back. I always rode with my feet clipped in. So you get the extra strength on the up of the pedal as right. well as the down. And that can help make up for some of it. But I did lots of bike touring where it's not like I ever trained or anything like that. I would just jump on and go. And the first few days, I would do fewer kilometers than by week two or three. Kind of bike myself into shape. Yeah. And it's a great way to discover Europe. I mean, I have discovered Western and Southern Europe and then Scandinavia through biking. Mm. It gets you in touch. People talk to you. As soon as they see a guy coming through with like 35 pounds of baggage on his bike, um, they chat with you. Yeah. And it just opens up avenues. You see stuff you would never see because you're on a bike and you can just choose, ah, that little back road to the right looks pretty. I'm going to go to that church. And right. you do that. And then you end up parking in front of the church and you are there chatting with you know, some local that's hanging out there and then they give you a recommendation of a place to eat and it goes that way. I find bike tourism is really uh, authentic would be the best word to describe it for me. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I love getting into the mountains and putting on a backpack, but that's more to get away from it all. Yeah. Reflective and enjoy the nature. Bike tourism for me, it really um, brings you in contact with that country more than any other type of tourism mm. because you get on the small back roads and you see the small side villages and I've done it in Europe, but I've also done it through Canada and I've done it through the US. Hmm. Same experience, no matter really? what continent I'm on. Um, it just, um, I've done it in Southern Asia too. Uh, it just opens up doors no matter where it's I've been biking. It's your preferred means of travel. Absolutely. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, I've, France is probably the country I know best by bike, yeah. um, but I've covered a good bit of the east coast of the U.S. and east coast of uh, Canada and all over Western Europe and Malaysia and Thailand and like Southeast Asia. I see it with rose-colored glasses, probably, because um, I don't know. You've had you had a lot of experience. You had enough experience. It sounds like yeah, but where... I haven't had a good bike tour in a long time, so I'm itching for one. Right. But now I've got three small kids, so I probably see it with rose-colored glasses, where I'm like, oh man, if I could just get on the open road one more time for a week or so. Well, hey man, <laughs> this is a big to do for me is to get on a bike with my kids in a trailer or something. Same here. And to go. Yep. So we're gonna have to wait hey, a, you want a few more years. Oh man, sometime, that would be great. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, we, I, we need some extra hands to wrangle these kids. But, um. I, I remember I was with um, my wife and then a group of people from the Red Cross. We had done like this Red Cross kind of uh, spring bike thing. Yeah. And we were at the top of Les Beaux en Provence, which is a perched hilltop village in Provence in the south of France. And it was a brutal climb to the top. And we make it to the top. And just as like we're getting there, we're all like, oh, falling off our bikes and hot and sweaty. We get passed by a family of five from Norway, ironically. <laughs> the dad is pumping up the hill. He's on his bike. And behind him, he's got a kid who's on one of those, uh, like, uh, what do you call it, like the alligator bikes or whatever, like where you attach the kid's bike to the adult bike. Yeah. And then the mother was pumping up the hill with a kid in a child seat in a trailer, non-electric, and they're just pumping up the hills. Nice. And, uh. We were just laughing. They get to the top and the kid's like, we're hungry. <laughs> I was like, your parents are hungry, man. <laughs> you don't understand what they just did. <laughs> I was like, someday that's going to be me. But I've modified my version of someday that's going to be me. And I'm probably going to be doing that with an electric bike. Yeah. I'm yeah, going to I'm gonna I, cheat know, with three kids, man. I hadn't thought about it with the electric bike. It could be a good we've, call. We've got I mean, two. Oh, they're fantastic, a, man. Is there a hybrid where you can pedal and then you can use electric sometimes? Or is it just... Yeah, so the one, if you get a nice one that has the everything kind of in the 
center of the bike. If yeah. the battery's in the center of the bike and the uh, motor is in the crank, if you don't need electric use, it's not so much heavier and it's the same pedal feel yeah. that you can just use like a regular bike. And then when you need to switch on, you switch on. Oh, that's um, cool, yeah. What I tend to do is when I don't really need it, I just put it in like the lowest mode. Right. And then when I really am going up a steep hill, I live on a hill that's 12% grade oh, in Oslo. Oh, wow, that like, is... Wow, straight up, man. What's it's insane. That like in the winter? <laughs> yeah. You actually can't access our house from one side in the winter. Yeah. The one road we yeah, can't I get up. That. You, so you we can only come up with the ice. one, yeah, the one side that's uh, less steep, which is right. maybe like an 8% grade. We can make it up that. Wow. Uh, but there, man, got to have an electric bike. And uh, yeah. I've kind of converted to, in my older age, I guess I'm going to start doing electric bike tours if I'm going to have three kids that I'm pulling around in one way or the other. So, um We've, okay, got well, two, we've got two of them, so uh, I can lend one to you guys and we can go off. Yeah, we'll uh, talk bike. about this, man. This has uh, definitely been a fantasy of mine to just <laughs> get on the bike from... I, I love the idea of, and I've talked to other people on the podcast, so this guy Tom Allen, I don't know if you ever follow his stuff, he's biked around the world, and I, I just remember being fascinated name. with yeah. his story of just, you know, the idea of just walking out of your apartment and, and riding a bike around the world and then like showing back up to your apartment like yeah. years later or something. Um, but doing that here in Norway, just leaving my apartment and going something like you did, like something across Europe or yeah. um, into Africa or anything like that. Uh, I have a good friend here who's kind of half American. His parents are both Norwegian, but he grew up in the US in the suburbs of DC. So, and he's more American than I am. Yeah. Uh, so his whole childhood and upbringing was in the US, but he's moved back here and his wife's Norwegian and he speaks native Norwegian also, of course, and has kids and whatnot. And he does that every year with a couple of mates. Yeah. They jump on a bike from Oslo and then they go somewhere. They're trying to do Scandinavia. So they've jumped on a bike from Oslo and just gone down to Gothenburg. Nice. They've gone over to Stockholm via the canals, and then they have a big goal of kind of looping up the Scandinavian peninsula to the north of Sweden and then coming back down to Finland over Helsinki. Yeah. And he literally does that. He gets on his bike, and he starts pedaling, and away he goes. Right. He doesn't get on a train. He doesn't drive to it. He just walks out of his house. And yeah. that's exactly what I've always done, too, with bike touring. I just walk out my house, I clip into my bike, and I go. Yeah, and it's, it's so, it, it is, it's so magical. And it, it's like the easiest form of tourism. Well, yeah, like you said, it's something about, it's less about the destination and it's just more of, hey, you're on the trip immediately and it's just, hey, you, yeah. you mean you're going to stop and get a coffee or whatever. You're going to interact with people. You, know, you don't really know where you're going to end up as opposed to, not that that can't happen when you're traditionally backpacking. Yeah. Um, but you do have to get to a place, get set up, get a place. It's just a different experience, you know? I feel um, like that you can leave when you want. I don't think, I don't know if there's, yeah, I don't know if there's better or worse. It, like this could be another phases of life thing, you yeah. know, different styles of travel. But for me right now, I'm very interested in bike touring, which is another reason. I mean, I, I backpacked know. a lot. Uh, I love backpacking. Yeah. Um, done the Eurorail on the train. I've done road trips in a car. I mean, they all have their pluses and minuses. Right. I keep love going back trips. to biking, though. I think what I like about biking is I can just go whenever I want. Yeah. You don't worry about rush hour traffic. You don't worry about catching a train or catching a plane. You just get on your bike when you wake up, mm -hmm. clip into the pedals, mm -hmm. and start going. And there's something so freeing about it. I don't think about any external factor. Um, maybe if it's raining, and I'm just like, ah. I'll take a long breakfast, look at the weather forecast, and I'll leave at one that day. Well, look at you, man. I mean, I'm sitting here. You're surrounded by bikes. This is your passion, clearly. Yeah. W you know, when did you decide to take yeah. your passion for biking and turn it into a business? How long were you in Norway? So, 
what, how well, did the, the whole the thing first, happen? The first Passion came when I was in Switzerland, and I was organizing a lot of rides for Red Cross friends. Okay. I use it as a way for people to meet each other. When you work in the expat community, international organizations, people come and go. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden someone's off in Haiti and right. someone's are in Pakistan. A, on a contract yeah. or something. Yeah, and yeah. off they go to Sudan and they come back in and people come and go. And so I found it a nice way to bring people together. I had like, I had different friends. They didn't know each other because they were never there at the same time. So I started organizing some bike tours in Switzerland some weekend trips, some longer trips. Like I mentioned, went to Provence for a week and stuff like that. And people were saying to me, man, this is your passion. You should be doing this. I was like tour guide on these tours. I was putting together four or five day itineraries and looking up all the historical points and often places that I had lived in France. Uh, Did you end up giving history and- Absolutely, yeah. all of that. And you I got, wanted to give them a cool experience. Yeah, I did. And I spent more time on that than I did on my work, probably with the Red Cross. Not at Red Cross time for the most part, by the way. Let's yeah, make yeah, that clear. Yeah, got it. But at home, like it's I was okay, passionate about it. It's okay, they're not going to fire you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going now, but... Uh, <laughs> you can be honest. <laughs> but I actually did find that my mind was starting to wander from my work. Desk job, sitting at a computer, lots of contract, like contractual stuff for HR. Yeah. And... Uh, First sign, right? And so. my mind is wandering often <laughs> about like, oh, uh, what's the next bike trip I'm going to plan? And I started getting this idea of well, realistically, I'm never going to be able to have a lifestyle where I can take people for like a week at a time. I was uh, engaged to be married to my wife and knew I wanted to have kids. Like, I'm not just going to go off for two weeks and take groups through the French countryside. So I started thinking, what about urban bike tours? Because I had been on lots of urban bike tours. Yeah. Uh, which, ironically, a lot of the companies in Europe are run by Americans. Right. In Munich, it's Mike's run by bikes. Got Mike's. And yeah, that uh, was a very famous one I did when my first backpack trip. It's the Is it first still or second. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. And it's the first, and I know Mike a little bit, and it's the first, I mean, not know, but I mean, I've had contact with him, uh, acquaintance. First or second bike tour, urban bike tour company in the world. Another one in Amsterdam. Uh, Americans who run Fat Tire, which is maybe the biggest if you take it in all of its branches in Paris, London, Barcelona, and Berlin. It's probably the largest uh, bike tour company in the world, would be my guess for urban biking and run by Americans also. I'd been on those and I'd been to Boston. I took a bike tour, been to DC, taking a bike tour. I'd always enjoyed bike tours. So I just started modifying this vision of I had myself biking through the countryside of France or up in the wilderness of Scandinavia. And I modified it to fit my lifestyle ultimately. Right. And I came up with this idea of Geneva by bike. I had colleagues at the Red Cross who were pretty experienced, some that had you know MBAs and things like this that were more management and they could help me write the business plan. Guy from the accounting department who could help me do the accounting and the budgeting. And I set up um, a company called Geneva by Bike. And we had gone so far that I got an insurance for it. I got uh, financial backing from the city tourism board. Oh, wow. Uh, they were really into it. It was legit. I was going forward with it. And then my wife got an offer she couldn't refuse to come back to Norway to work for the Ministry of Health. And I had wanted to come back to Norway. I had been here before all the way back in 2001, 2002 up in Trondheim and really liked it. So I had this idea. That's a story for a different time. And I had this idea that I could imagine settling back there and, you know, I was engaged to be married to Norwegian. So I thought, man, this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I actually pushed for us and I thought I'll just transfer that idea to Norway. Right. I had researched and there was no bike tour company in Oslo. So I had it in my mind. When I first got here, I wasn't ready to just start a bike tour company in a city that I knew because I'd been here a lot because my wife's from the area, but I didn't know it well enough. So I let the idea kind of simmer and just sat there and bubbled for a couple of years while I continued to do consulting work for the Red Cross. 
and slowly but surely, uh, I put together the idea on Viking biking. I knew where I needed a shop, uh, roughly how many bikes I want to start with based on the budget I had. I had tested the routes and I mean tested. I had That's probably, the fun part, right? I had ridden <laughs> variations of what is now our main bread and butter tour, the Oslo Highlights, probably 50 times before I ever settled on a final route. Right. And I then even tweaked it after the first two seasons each time. Now right. we're set. But, uh, you know, ultimately hundreds of rides to get that exact route right. Uh, it's work, but it's fun work, right? To just keep yeah. biking over and over and over and go, whoa, what's down that road if I take a left there? What if I take a right there? And so I spent these years where I was a consultant with the Red Cross getting everything ready so that when I could launch it, it was ready to go at full speed ahead because in Geneva, I was going to launch it on like a kind of on a side side hustle basis, right. a little bit like, you know, Uber drivers or side hustlers. That's right. what I was going to do with this. It was going to be a little side hustle and I'd see if it could grow. But here I just decided to kind of jump into you the deep end. In. Yeah. But that's because I had a few years to think about it. I had my experience in Geneva plus a couple of years here. And by that time, I was, I don't know, three and a half years into the thought process, had everything registered, good business plan, friends helping out. Um, and so I was ready to take the jump and I did. And so, um, June 1st, 2012, we opened for business. Wow. What did that day feel like for you? I guess I should have some witty response about it or remember it. I, I don't so much. No. I, it's funny because the days leading up to it were heavy training days with the new guides. I had hired staff and I was taking them out on the routes. Was this all money that you had saved? This or? was all self-financed. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. How much? <laughs> can, I mean, you don't have to tell, I, but was it, you know? Tens of thousands of US dollars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. High tens of thousands. Wow. Um, you know, we started with 50 bikes. That's a lot of bikes to buy. Yeah. yeah Plus, I had a shop that I had to put a big deposit on um, to rent. You know, I had no uh, financial history with this company. And you didn't know. So this I had to was pay a work. lot up front. You know, so the guy who owns the building was like, yeah, we'll take you on. You can pay a nice sizable deposit and pay six months of rent up front. And I just bought 50 bikes and I had six staff members. And uh, that first year was like the, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times as it is running any type of company, yeah. let alone a tourism company that's weather dependent. Right. And we had one of the worst summers in the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. In 2012, it rained almost 90% of our first two months. Because I think I was, that's when I first came here and it was just, weeks of rain and cold was, yeah we literally were wearing wool sweaters sitting in the shop because the heat turns off you know at a certain date you can't turn the heat on inside the building anymore and then it turns on again we're actually on like october 1st so in the middle of july we were wrapped up in wool blankets and wool sweaters because it was 13 degrees and raining 13 celsius yeah. whatever that's like 55 degrees were you were you and that's not at normal that point? oh uh, my god yeah i ran a debt of four hundred thousand kroner that first year um, That's the equivalent of like divide by grand, seven, something yeah, something like that. that. Yeah, forty fifty grand. Yeah, so I ran forty fifty grand U.S. dollars. So I had eaten up into basically all my savings. Um, luckily, my wife so was, it was able not to, profitable the first year, nor the second year, but had turned a corner. Yeah, um, I didn't start living comfortably until last year. Wow. Uh, some of that was a decision which was I wanted to make sure that other actors didn't try to come in. I always had this fear that there were other actors that were going to try to come in and take my place. Right. And there are other small bike tour companies. Um, and I 
in a way, I work with them. We try to partner up together and fill different gaps in the market. That works fine. But I was always afraid that there was going to be some big one that was going to come along. And so I kept scaling up. So I, instead of paying myself, I kept buying more bikes. And right. now we next season, we'll have nearly 200 bikes. You were investing in the business. So I was investing in the business instead of uh, in myself and was just getting by by the hair, like in my chinny chin chin. <laughs> and then last year, it turned a corner. And this year... And so much of it was that first year was just the horrible weather. And every summer since then, it's been fine and normal and a nice yeah. Scandinavian summer. And this summer was This summer was crazy. the greatest summer of all time. Yeah. Um, it kind of compensated for that first season that we were open. Uh, so it was, it was taking a passion and turning it into a profession. But that's much more glamorous sounding than it is in reality. There's a lot of ups and downs. There's sleepless nights. Can I make payroll? You have three kids in the time that I've opened this company. There's plenty of nights where everyone else goes to bed at 10.30. I work until 1.30 at home answering emails and sending out bills and paying bills. And then one of the kids is sick and is up at night. And I wake up the next morning at 6, having slept an hour and a half, two hours. And then I go out the next day. I'm on tour for six hours. Like There's, there's low times and tough times to when you start your own business. And that is universal. That doesn't matter mm-hmm. what industry you're in, what country you're in. It's tough. The benefit of it is that I think um, at that point now, next year, I plan to have an office manager who takes over a lot of the tasks that I don't like because I started this because I love biking and I love people. Uh, And now we have Viking hiking. So we also do nature walks through Oslo's great nature out on the islands, island hopping or up in the wilderness in the market and the forest. And that's what I want to do. I want to be out in the wilderness showing people moose tracks. I want to be biking to the beaches and jumping off sea cliffs and swimming. I want to be going through the world's largest sculpture park, Bigelon Park on You want to do the fun part of what... Yeah, and so I always thought I would get to that point. I thought it would be faster. I had a plan that it would be after five seasons. Yeah. This was my seventh season. Okay. So it's going to be on the eighth season that I can really turn over, I think, the administration of the company over to someone. Do you think... The the fact that you started a business around something you're passionate about carried you through those tough times? Yeah, I think so. Um, if I had just been sitting on a computer, if my business were just kind of doing something office-based, I would have gone crazy because that does not fit my mentality. It's one of the reasons I had to leave the Red Cross in an organization that I love. Like I bleed Red Cross. I love them with my heart. But at the same time, it's still very much computer-based work. Yeah. And that drove me crazy. And so my mentality was that of a traveler right? I mean, you share that with me. And there's a certain freedom to doing your own thing. Yeah. Uh, So I think by being able to do my own thing in something that I was passionate about, those two factors is what kept me going. Yeah. Being able to do what I want, just choose. Okay, this is how I'm going to run my business. I'm making the decisions and the buck stops with me and I had all accountability and I like that. And that it was something that I enjoyed doing, which was being outside in nature and yeah. in biking. And if a bike broke down, I like getting grease in my hands and fixing it. Not so much anymore. Don't have time to it. <laughs> but in the beginning, in the first few seasons, it was it was so varied and diverse that um, even though the times were tough, still when I was in the shop here, helping customers on bike rentals, fixing bikes or out on tour, I still loved it. Even if it meant sleepless nights because, right. man, are we earning enough to do payroll? which we always did, but barely. Um, so yeah, that passion helped me through it. It was one of the two factors. And also, I just don't like having a boss. The pa- <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's a good uh, indicator for uh, being your own business person. Yes. Um, yeah, one of the big patterns that I've noticed seems with you is that you've, you have been able to 
have a hyper-awareness around the things that you like, and then you're designing your lifestyle around that, whether it's your business or where you're going to live or what you're going to do. From the young age, going into saying, I want to do humanitarian work and, and be over in Europe and doing that. And I, I just think intention is so important when you want some kind of lifestyle or you want to do something that seems really big and you hold on to that and take it as a truth rather than just uh, some sort of, oh, this is just a random idea. Like, I don't know if I could ever do this. But if you take your dreams seriously and you make choices that are like revolved around them, um, I think that's a really powerful way to live. And, and you can, I'm going to say manifest those things because you put in the work. But, it, but, you know, it's interesting. You say you put in the work. I... This, you know, the old adage, like, if you just work hard enough or whatever. It, right. it's, I don't think it's completely true. I think there is, you can work as hard as you possibly can, but without a good plan, that work doesn't necessarily get you ahead. If you have a great plan, but then you don't work hard at all at it, that's not going to get you. You actually have to find the right balance because if you just focus on one or the other, it's not going to take you down the right road. So yeah, I actually did have, I think I've often had quite a vision or a plan of what I want to be doing in life and put into practice. And then I worked hard. But you also have to realize at some points, uh, running your own tourist business in a foreign country in a foreign language, you can burn out. And you sometimes have to back off and say, oh, I'm, I'm working too hard. Same thing that you can have you can plan to every single detail, but sometimes you have to almost be willing to let it go. Have other people that you work with spread their wings and take it over and they have ideas and you don't plan every little single detail right. and you become willing to kind of take a left turn when you thought you were going straight type thing. So there is finding a balance. I think a lot of people who are kind of uh, almost like professional travelers, uh, expats, you have to learn that right balance of it looks glamorous, but actually it takes a lot of work in a way. But it also involves some planning that's not just all luck where you end up. It's a different type of lifestyle than just, you know, if we had stayed where we grew up. It's a different type of lifestyle that I think actually involves a little bit more planning and thinking it through and figuring out how you want to turn this kind of crazy idea of being an international traveler and international tourism and turning it into a lifestyle. It doesn't come just with hard work. It comes actually with having a a plan on hand, like how am I going to do it? Right. Writing out, I mean, Actionable 50 a 50 page and, business right. plan is what I have. You know, wow, yeah. I got a 50 page business plan to make this company get off the ground. Yeah. And so there, and there, seven years. Yeah, yeah. And so you do have to, I, I think it's a type of lifestyle that requires, you can luck into it, but I don't think it is sustainable. You've, you do have to plan it out ultimately because it doesn't just fall in your lap. It's an unusual lifestyle. Yeah. that we lead in a way. So you sometimes have to remember that, that it feels very normal to us. But for the vast majority of people, it, it's not normal. It's normal to just sit in a bike shop and chat with you with a couple microphones <laughs> yeah, on yeah, a, yeah, on a exactly. Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, sure. no, I mean, it's, it's not completely normal. <laughs> so you do, if it's the lifestyle that you want, and it's not for everybody, but if it's the lifestyle you want, it involves a little bit more planning than a regular nine to five job in suburban Philadelphia. That can just come to you naturally. This is a lifestyle choice that doesn't just you have to kind of fall from a tree. To, to yeah, it does. And so if you want it, you kind of have to go out and get it. It's not going to, for most people, it's not just going to land in your lap. When you were designing the experiences and you were doing the the 50 rides, yeah. trying to fine tune and everything, did you 
during that process become closer with the city, with Norway? Did you build a relationship with Norway by doing that? My appreciation for Norway is growing each year. And I don't know if that is from being out in Oslo, which really is a great city to be active in. It's one of the greenest cities in the world, arguably the greenest as a percentage of its landmass. You know, you're talking like 65% of Oslo's protected green space. So if you like being out biking and hiking, it's ideal. And so when you're out every day and you're not sitting in the office, you appreciate the city more and more and more. Like it fits my lifestyle. At the same time, I have kids and the Scandinavian social system makes you love Scandinavia when you have kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the nearly That's free true. daycare and <laughs> the right now my wife is on maternity leave. Yeah. And we're going to be in the U.S. for much of the rest of November. When we get back, I go on paternity leave yeah. all the way until May. Even though I run my own company, I get paid to be off. I'm starting paternity leave in uh, April, so... Okay. Oh man, you should, could could you start it like a month or two earlier? Then we'd have more crossover, so we can do uh, pop up hair walks. Been you know, sweet man. Because I have we dreams. Got, we got, this we got like one month crossover, so I've got these dreams of putting my kid in the little ski sled. Yeah, and then I'm gonna cross country ski him around in what's called the pudk, which yeah. you must of course know about, where you put the little kid in the yeah the whole little, the whole setup. Yeah, yeah. You, like you strap it around your waist and you actually pull the sled while you're skiing. Yeah, That's I'm, how I'm not good enough at cross country skiing to do that yet. I just got good enough uh, two years ago. Which is crazy. I can downhill ski, but I have a really hard time without those edges going downhill on cross-country skis. Yeah. That, anyway. It's awkward. <laughs> anyway, yes. So um, Norway, my appreciation for Oslo and my appreciation for Norway, it's grown over the years. And I don't know how much of that is that I'm in tourism. Yeah. And you just get good feedback from people all the time. Like, oh my God, the city's got so much nature. I can't believe we're just jumping off rocks into the sea. I can't believe we're seeing moose tracks or seeing moose or swimming in one of the 343 lakes you know it's got 343 lakes and the feedback from customers is just so intensely positive i think they feel like when they've been with us they've seen kind of more of like an authentic a real oslo which is a city that's based on nature yeah and they get out and explore that on foot or on bike with us and so that just makes me appreciate it more Mm. but then there is also the fact that man this system works really well when you've got kids and you learn to appreciate it. Yeah. So I think it's a two pronged reason that I continue to have year by year an increased appreciation for Norway and Oslo, which is great because in Geneva, there's like a, there was a diminishing returns. It was starting to go down after a certain period of time. And for me, it's continued to go up here. Mm. It wasn't a love at first sight. No. I mean, I liked Norway. I, 100%. The, I, I, I like Norway from the beginning, but it doesn't wow you no, like Rome 100% does. I'm on the same page of you yeah you don't walk through oslo immediately and think oh this is a classic european city you know it's kind of like at least when i first got here too you know think about the year you started viking biking and what the city was then and what it's now it's kind of like yeah i mean I it, it was know. fine yeah and but then like you said it does grow on you or you grow into it i'm not quite sure you know i I think it fits i was i was talking about how the longer i've been traveling the more i start to appreciate cities that are livable yeah no matter where they are in the world that's true yeah and that's oslo it's a city for people who appreciate a livable city when you come here and you think wow everything works the coastline is beautiful you can swim in the heart of the downtown port the water's clean you can drink from the rivers in the forest of oslo you know you can take your kids to farms because there's farms all around oslo and just see animals 10 minutes from where you live 
You don't have to drive we get have, in the car we and we drive. Walk to same here. See yeah. animals. Yeah. yeah, and you don't have to get in a car and drive fifty minutes an hour to get out to a petting zoo or something like that. You walk around the corner. You go to your neighborhood farm in a city. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy. Sure. Uh, and I bike through farms on tour numerous times per week, where we're going past sheep and goats and cows and horses, and then we end up at sea cliffs and beaches. And it's all literally just a stone's throw from the downtown. I mean, I'm talking big day in this case, yeah. where it's, I'd say it's part of the city center ultimately. Sure. I mean, it's right there. And it's just a whole different world. And so you you grow into appreciating the city because it's a extremely well thought out city and they're planning it with a purpose. Mm. It's but a city it on the rise. Yeah, for but sure. it doesn't, it doesn't hit you like going to Prague or Rome, no. which just has that historic downtown that overwhelms you. Right. But then when you're there, you start to think, Oh, living here could be a little bit chaotic. The trash doesn't get collected. The car traffic is crazy. The horn, horns are honking. And then I often end up coming back to here and thinking, ah, I like it here. This yeah. is, uh, so it's it, a it peaceful, grows on you. tranquil place. Yeah, it is. Yeah, And it's a city. As we say in Norwegian, that's what yeah. it is. Yeah. It's, so you speak, keeps you speak fluent in the region. Depends on who you ask. Uh, <laughs> my wife would say it's pretty stagnant these days because I work mostly in English and French. I have yeah. a lot of French customers. We speak mostly English in the home when the kids are awake. And then we only switch over to Norwegian once our youngest is asleep, okay. which is around nine. You know, and you do newborn. that to keep your language skills yeah. up? Yeah. So, I have a hard time doing that with my wife. I just stay on the English yeah. because I'm lazy. From about nine to 11 p.m. every night, we speak Norwegian, but that's it. So I speak Is that a hard, fast rule so you can improve your language or is it no. just is a habit you guys have developed? Now I'm just asking my, personal questions that my, I want to know. <laughs> uh, my wife just starts speaking to me in Norwegian. Okay, I think yeah. she has the need to speak Norwegian. Yeah, okay. Tornado, yeah. She speaks perfect English. You basically think she's almost American when you speak to her. Right. Her written English is probably better than her written Norwegian even. Mm -hmm. She went to high school in English, right. did most of her university in English, master's in English, works in English. But still, Norwegian is your native language yeah, when you yeah. grow up here. So there's a comfort level. And I think there's also a certain fairness that goes with most of our relationship We've been together for 12 years. Most of our relationship has been in English. Mm. It's nice to have a little bit of balance. Right. Uh, if we have arguments, she speaks in Norwegian, I speak in English. Then we're on 50-50 equal ground now, which is real nice when for you her. you can argue in another language, you know you really <laughs> yeah, got so, it. Um, it's good. We should probably argue in Norwegian because I just can't think of the words and I can't be as quick. So then my anger dissipates. Yeah, and you can't I've say anything that's stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're just like... Oh, well, what are we even fighting about again? I just couldn't even think of the phrase. Whatever. Forget it. Um, that's yep. funny. Yeah. Been there and done that. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to institute that rule uh, with her when the last kid goes to bed. It's going to be full on Norwegian. It works, um, you know, and it. Um, I slip into English sometimes. There's no doubt. Yeah. But for the most part, I'd say from 9 to 11 p.m., it's 85% Norwegian. Yeah. That's pretty good. Uh, and my Norwegian's good, by the way. Right. It's, um, my, my French is probably still a touch better. Okay. Well, then you're at Maybe a not written. My written Norwegian is better than my written French. You're, you're my at a high level French then because better, yeah. you said you worked in French. So if yeah, your yeah. Norwegian's only a touch less, then that's, that's yeah. pretty stellar. Um, no, it, it's good. I mean, I can 
sit around a table with all Norwegians and have good yeah. jokes and a long dinner and be in the moment and, and, and be in the moment and just yeah that's what that's I need not to a get problem. To. It's not a problem. Um, it's a problem for me. My language has always been a struggle for me, but I've really enjoyed the process of um, learning it and then getting it. It really has connected me closer to the culture uh, in sure. such a huge way. All right, so I mean, we started getting the topic of Oslo, and as we're kind of getting to the end of this, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about more about Oslo and what are some of the things people should see here like why should people come to oslo you mentioned all the hiking and the biking and the nature opportunities it's so interesting because i have been thinking about this not related to this podcast but oslo in 36 hours was just in the new york times the other day i opened up the link uh i haven't read it yet i read it it struck me as someone writing it trying to do none of the main tour sites and I don't think it is Oslo in 36 hours. It's Oslo in 36 hours for someone who's been here for 72 hours already. The, right. Those right. are what you do on day four, five, and six yeah, to yeah. a certain extent. It's tough to say, but when you're a tourist, man, be a tourist to a certain extent, mm-hmm. right? Most people, they just want to fit in with the locals. And that's why you jump on a bike, right? This you is can, why biking's great. I was going to say, you, you, can, you get to see the sites, but then there's this... But you're not on a big red bus. Right. And so... You still have to see the main sites. There's a reason they're the famous sites. You don't go to Paris without seeing the Eiffel Tower and the Champs-Élysées and the Louvre. You need to see them. But then if you're there for longer and you have time to explore deeper, then you go deeper into it. I find if you can jump on a bike or walk around, you'll kind of soak in the vibe of the city as long as you're at street level. So even if you're going between the main tour sites, but you're doing it on a bike or you're walking, or you're taking the local tram, you're just not doing it on like a typical bus tour, you'll soak in that stuff that you don't read about in guidebooks because that's between the main tour sites. Right. But you still got to see the main tour sites. I mean, if you come to Oslo and you don't see Vigelandsparken, the largest sculpture park by any one artist in the world, one of the craziest pieces of public art you'll ever see. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've seen it. It's a very inspiring place. Uh, and people still mostly refer to it as the naked park on our tours. Yeah. It's just hundreds and hundreds of naked statues. It's a bit overwhelming. If you don't see it, I don't feel like you've seen the best sights of Oslo. And I read the comments on that New York Times article where a lot of people were saying, never once mentioned the largest sculpture park by any artist in the world. Right. How can you not do that? Yeah. That's like going saying, go to New York and don't go to Central Park. Right. Like, you go to Central Park yeah. if you're a tourist. Just trying you go to be to, cool by not yeah, the Yeah, I thought that. And, yeah. um, and so to me, that 36 Hours article was a great article. Fun how it's written. It uh, didn't agree with all points in it. Um, but nonetheless, fun if you've already been in Oslo a few days. But if you haven't been in Oslo a few days, you've got to see the Sculpture Park. You've got to see the Modern Harbor, of course, which she does recommend in that uh, article of the New York Times. But you also you have to get out in the nature. It's something I found funny about that 36 hours. It mentioned how this is such a green city. And if you want to understand Oslo, you got to know the nature. And then she just talks about kind of hipster areas that you should go to that are cool restaurants and cocktail bars. Experience the nature in Oslo. You take Metro Line 1 and you go to the top at Fronschetten, past the Holmenkollen ski jump. And it's this one of the most beautiful old wooden buildings in Oslo. You're nearly 1,500 feet or nearly 500 meters above sea level. And you've got the fjord and city stretching out dozens of miles below you. You've got the wilderness and the lakes behind you. If you're there at the right time of year and right time of day, you might see some moose. And then you just go for a walk. And you're out in the wilderness. 
and you'll understand where that peacefulness of Oslo comes from. This You can be in the heart of downtown Oslo and you still hear no horns and it's quiet and peaceful. But you're in touch with nature. Get out to the coastline. You can find sea cliffs to jump off. You can find little hidden beaches. Be careful which one. A lot of them are clothing optional out on big day. You just come across, uh, you get, like turn around uh, one you corner of rocks and all of a sudden like, you're like, whoa, yeah. hey, hi, hi, hello. Yeah. And you just keep walking on like nothing happened. <laughs> but you find your own little discovered hidden piece of nature. And there's very few cities in the world I've been to where you can have your own little hidden piece of nature. In Oslo, you can have thousands and thousands of kilometers of your own hidden nature. I mean, you are talking literally tens of thousands of paths within Oslo's Marka or this urban forest. So if you visit Oslo and you just stick to maybe a little bit of uh, what's cool, new, urban, hip recommendations, you're missing so much of the city. You, you've got to see the Holmenkoln Ski Jump and Florenstetten, two main tour sites up in the forest. If you don't see the forest, you haven't seen Oslo. You've got to get out to Big Day with its coastline and it's got the great museums, the Viking Ship Museum. I love the Fram Museum that was redone a couple of years ago. To me, it's the most interesting and interactive of all the museums out there. But how can you come to Oslo and it's the only place in the world that has good Viking ships? That's it. There's no other city in the world that has real, well-preserved Viking ships. The three best-preserved Viking ships in the world are all in one museum and they're in Oslo. And you go and see them. They're from the year 800, man, right. or the 800s. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we just had friends in town. We went to Vigelin Park, yeah. went to the Viking Ship Museum. <laughs> You've got to do it. Went down to Akerbrega. Yeah. Like, yeah. And they're great sites. There's a reason they're popular. Yeah. They are great sites. The difference in Oslo is you can visit these sites and it's not like going to the Colosseum. It's not like going to the Eiffel Tower. There's not a million other people there. It's a little bit off the beaten path as a discovered tourist destination is yeah. also it's hot it's up and coming Definitely. it's very much on the radar but it is not like going to prague no. or paris or barcelona you can feel like you're on your own in oslo quite easily uh, you can also be unlucky and go to the viking ship museum when there's three bus groups of chinese tourists that all show up at once and they take over the museum with uh 220 people showing up at one time get a little unlucky but you can also go to that viking ship museum at times where there's 30 other people in the building Yeah, in peak season. Yeah, it's great. And so you have to see these major sites. They're major sites for a reason, and I recommend you do it in any city. And then if you, you know, at night when the major sites are closed, then you hit some of the cool urban, you know, hot spots. Yeah. Uh, they're often available at 8 p.m. at 9 yeah. p.m. at night. But I'd say you've got to go to Viglands Park. You've got to hit the Viking Ship Museum and out in Big Day. You've got to do the Akabriga Harbor. Um, and get up into the forest. You've got to get up to the Holmenkoln Ski Jump. The top, sitting on, stand on the top of that Holmenkoln Ski Jump or at Frogenstetteren. It's pretty rad. It, I haven't heard rad dropped in a long time, man. <laughs> and it is. It is pretty rad. It really is. Um, so you just got to gotta do some of the big tour sites and then fit some of the lesser-known stuff as part of the journey in between them. Grab a bike, and then you can see all the lesser-known stuff as you're making your way from the Sculpture Park to the Viking Ship Museum. And you all of a sudden end up biking through a farm, as we were talking about. And you do, randomly. You end up going down some beautiful streets that have gorgeous neoclassical architecture from the second half of the 1800s that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. So if you can get about like a local, but still see the main tour sites, you kind of uh, kill two birds with one stone. And if you need a bike or a guide, biking, hiking. We've got you set up here, man. Viking, biking, biking. VikingBikingOslo.com. Uh, you can hear Curtis is the man. He knows what he's doing. And uh, 
It's an yeah. amazing way to see the city. So if you Th come through here. That's an exaggeration. I hire people who know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I make a lot of mistakes and hire good staff. So <laughs> let's get that clear. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, check these guys out if you come through Oslo. And I always tell people, hey, look look me up. Now they can look you up too. If, uh, if they're in town, we can, you know, would love to. Always nice to meet listeners uh, from this podcast when they come through town. It's a pleasure. And, um, yeah, and we're a team of expats that work here also that yeah. have similar stories and we relate to other travelers and uh, expats. So just stop in. Anyone is What a great for thing, a man. Chat. I mean, to be a traveler and then to be around that international flavor, getting to meet people from all different countries, which is, I mean, one of the best parts of traveling to me is you got like meeting the locals and being in the place and the physicality that we talked about and yep. the culture there and everything like that. And then you got the other side, which is meeting the other travelers and yep. the international vibe. And you get to meet people from all over the get world. a little bit of both here at Viking Biking. Yeah. And you, you, you have set yourself up with a business that you get to be around that international flavor every day. I mean, what a... What a big difference it makes to show up to work oh, yeah. and to have that. Not I mean, by what, chance. It's one of the reasons I started. Right. Man, it's great. Um, I got two places in my heart for work. I got one that's Red Cross and one that's Viking Biking, and yeah. I'll carry them to the grave with me. Love yeah. them both. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, congratulations on everything. And hey, man, we got to hang out a little more now that uh, that we're connected here. Absolutely. And I always high-five these things out when, when you're in person. And uh, I say one last thing, which is yeah. go Sixers, trust the process. Hey, I uh, just for you, my man. Oh, the there eagles are flying high. I nice. put on my eagles t-shirt. <laughs> I forgot to reveal it. The big reveal at the end. So uh, thanks this so much. This is great, man. Th thanks for Touch your time. Touch of Philadelphia and Oslo. Thanks there you so much. Go. Let's go grab a cheesesteak. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. See you. Bye. <laughs> there you have it, my chat with Curtis in the bike shop. I loved that setting, just being surrounded by all those bikes and... Being around travel, even in a city that I live in, you can always get around travel when you're around other travelers and talking about this stuff. That's the beauty of the podcast, I think, and, and this whole community that we've built up here that you're a part of, the Zero to Travel Caravan. Just being around travel, even if you're not traveling right now, is such a wonderful thing because it's part of us all. It's great to talk about. It's great to be around. And uh, I want to thank Curtis for his time. Look forward to catching up with him when I get back to Oslo. And now I have to share with you those two favorite things that I love about Beach Towns. I was going to say one, but I'm going to share two. One is related to this podcast. This is the number one thing. Cruiser bikes. Cruiser bikes, you know, with the big fat seats and the wide handlebars. Cruiser bikes are always in and around good beach towns because everything's flat, right? There's no mountains to climb. So you only need one gear. You can get on a big cruiser bike. You can pedal in your flip-flops. Ah, it's just such a good feeling if you've been on a cruiser bike at the beach. You know what I'm talking about. You can smell the salt water. You're just cruising. You got the wind in your hair. You're just cruising. I mean, it's called a cruiser bike. <laughs> I mean, can you come up with a cooler name? No. I don't think so. Uh, so cruiser bikes there. I wanted to share that with you because we were talking bikes today. And the other thing is a little bonus honorable mention, I guess I would say, is beach bars and grills. Beachside bars and grills. We don't even have to be beachside. We went to a bar and grill today called Frenchie's. Great name. Frenchie's Outpost. And, uh, you know, it's just these, these bar and grills that have fresh seafood. They're just like a bar and grill. It's not a fancy restaurant, but then they'll have the most amazing seafood. I had a grouper sandwich today, fresh from the ocean. 
Or they could be those beach shacks where you can get milkshakes and grilled cheese and things like that. Anything like that. Those beach stands, bars and grills, or beach shacks where you can get food and, and ice cream and stuff like that. I love those things. Man, I, you know, I'm starting to get torn now because I'm a mountain guy, but I love the beach too. I don't know. That's why we travel, right? So we can go to all these places. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote. First, I want to quickly thank, once again, Pimsler for supporting today's show. ZeroToTravel.com slash easy will take you to a link where you can get access to a free seven-day trial to Pimsler's monthly subscription service. Now, what does this mean? It means instead of spending hundreds of dollars to get all of the lessons in a language you want to learn, you can actually pay a low monthly fee, just like you do for Spotify or Netflix, and you can get access to all the lessons in whatever language you want to learn. And you know what? They're letting you try it out for free for seven days. Just go to that link, zerototravel.com slash easy, and you've got the hookup. This is a great way to learn a language on the go through audio. If you like listening to podcasts, you're going to love it. Go for it. Don't put it off any longer. Give it a try. Thanks again to Pimsler for supporting today's show. If you decide to continue on with that monthly trial, you'll also be supporting my work in the podcast here. And I thank you for that, my friend. All right. Let me leave you with a quote, an inspirational quote on cycling. This one's from Eddie Merckx. Ride as much or as little, as long or as short as you feel, but ride. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.